This is a HeadGum Podcast. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. And let's talk about a company that I think you're familiar with. You might order from it. You might order from it every day. You might order from it even though you don't want to, but you feel like you have no choice. And even if you do avoid it as best you can, I would bet that you end up using this company's services without even realizing it. Of course, I am talking about Amazon. But I think you might not realize just how huge of a footprint Amazon actually has in America today. Let's break it down a little bit. What started as a gleam in the eye of a young Bezos who had a simple dream to bend the book publishing industry to his will has grown into a corporate megastructure that touches every part of American society. Now, you might say, hey, Adam, hold on a second. You're exaggerating why Amazon hasn't even hit 8% of all retail purchases yet. And to that, I would say, hold on a second, hypothetical person. 8%, are you listening to yourself? 8% of all retail purchases in the country is massive, especially when you realize that that includes around 40% of all online orders, by far the largest of any one company. 112 million people pay for Amazon Prime in the U.S., almost three quarters of U.S. households. That's more than the number of households that, I don't know, do most things. Fill in your own statistic. It's an enormous number. And Amazon is way more than a retailer. Its cloud computing service is what most of the internet runs on. So even if you try to avoid Amazon, you still end up using it when you're just watching Netflix. According to a law review article on the company's huge influence, Amazon is now, quote, a marketing platform, a delivery and logistics network, a payment service, a credit lender, an auction house, a major book publisher, a producer of television and films, a fashion designer, a hardware manufacturer, and a leading host of cloud server space. I mean, what the fuck kind of bookstore is this? Now, look, I'm not just mad at them for making money. That's not the problem. The real issue is that a disproportionate share of control over all those markets translates into a disproportionate share of power over our society. Amazon literally has the power to determine how massive parts of American society run, and they abuse this power in all sorts of ways. For instance, because they operate the dominant marketplace for online retail, and sell their own goods on that marketplace, they actually compete with the other sellers on their platform. In fact, the company actually takes data from those sellers to develop its own products to compete with them. So Amazon is able to put completely unrelated companies out of business. Again, it's about power. When Amazon is the only game in town, that game ends up rigged. Or to take another example, Amazon is so powerful that it is literally able to bend our governments to its whims. 
When Amazon was choosing sites for its new corporate headquarters, it led a contest where cities around the country were asked to compete for the honor of having an Amazon HQ in their backyard. And these cities bent over backwards to offer the company inducements, perks, and massive, massive tax breaks. Some cities even offered to not charge Amazon any payroll taxes whatsoever for years. Think about how perverse this is. Cities across America felt so so needy for Amazon's favor that they were willing to give exorbitant freebies at public expense to one of the largest, most successful companies in world history. I mean, Amazon doesn't need those handouts. The people in those cities did, but they weren't getting it. Bezos was. And all of that success comes at a huge price for Amazon's workers. Amazon is now the second largest employer in the entire United States. Now, Amazon did commit to a $15 an hour minimum wage a few years ago, but tales of abuses still abound. Whether it's factory workers being treated like robots, drivers forced to choose speed over safety, white-collar workers pushed to the brink of emotional collapse, Amazon receiving special favor from OSHA when its safety negligence resulted in the deaths of factory workers, or its well-known relentless effort to stifle any hint of a union from popping up at one of its warehouses. You might have heard in the news over the last few weeks that in order to stop a unionization vote in Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon has flooded workers with anti-union propaganda and even strong-armed local officials into changing the pattern of a traffic light to stop union organizers from campaigning. Now, despite all of that, Amazon workers in Bessemer are still engaged in a historic struggle for unionization I stand in solidarity with them on that. And you know what? I hope you do, too. You can make your own choices. But, you know, why not side with the little guy versus, uh, you know, the literal richest man in the world? But look, Amazon is not the story of a single evil person who works out his biceps way too much, which, by the way, uh, he does. I mean, you don't need to have your polo shirts cut so tight, Jeff. But no, look, it's much bigger than that. It's the story of the fraying fabric of American society. See, Amazon, in reality, has just taken advantage of massive trends in America that have been brewing for decades. The death of antitrust, the shift towards online commerce, de-unionization, and the concentration of all economic activity in just a few metropolitan areas. These trends have allowed Amazon to fill a power vacuum and exert dominance over our entire society. And how we got there is a very complex story. And no one tells it better than Alec McGillis. He's a reporter for ProPublica, and most recently he's the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. It's an incredible book, and I think you're going to be gobsmacked by this interview. Please welcome Alec McGillis. Alec, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Adam. So you've written a new book called Fulfillment. It's about Amazon in, uh, to, in one word, but I, <laughs> tell, you tell me what it's about. What, what do you cover in the book? Uh, this book is really uh, kind of what's, uh, it's, it's about what's happening to us as a, as a country as a whole uh, right now in this moment, uh, where we've had for years now these growing divides between sort of richer places and poorer places in this country, uh, what I call sort of winner, winner take all places and left behind places. And it's not just about the urban-rural divide, which we've heard so much about, but it's also about cities, the divide between cities, some cities that are just getting 
richer and richer uh, to the point of becoming almost unlivable. Um, and then other, a whole bunch of other cities that have, have really kind of felt fallen further and further behind. And the way I chose to tell the story is through, through Amazon. Amazon is kind of the, the thread that takes you around the country. Um, it's the frame that I use to look onto our country and what we're becoming. It's not so much about Amazon itself, Amazon the company, but it's really about everything that falls within Amazon's growing shadow. It's, it's about Amazon's America. Um, and, and it's just been really kind of striking to me that I, I of course started this book several years ago. Um, but, but that, you know, as I was wrapping up the book this past year, that the things I was worried about and things that I saw happening around the country have just of course been greatly accelerated and exacerbated, uh, during the pandemic. So it's, it's been, it's been pretty eerie to, to watch that happening. Yeah. I mean, God, there's so much there I want to unpack. Uh, first of all, just, just the fact you said cities that have become so rich, they've become unlivable is such a stark way to put it. I live in one of those cities. Los Angeles has incredibly high housing prices, but we don't normally think of it that way. We, we, Hey, when, when people get rich, when an area gets rich, that's a good thing, but there's actually like a detriment, (laughs) like the richness of some of these areas has worsened the quality of life for people in them. Uh, how has how has Amazon exacerbated this divide? Let's just start simple. Yes, you know it's it's a huge problem, and and the cities I chose to focus on, um, the, the the winner take all cities that I chose to focus on the book. I could have chosen any number of cities, but I I focused on Seattle and Washington D.C. Um, and and it's and it, it just so happens that I actually picked Washington as the second city um, before Amazon picked it as the as the home of its second headquarters. So that was um, sort of serendipitous in, in that regard. But but what you've um, what you've seen is that. Uh, we used to have in this country a. You, we've always had cities that were wealthier and poorer, but um, but that divide has grown so much worse, so much larger in the last few decades. Just like the divide between um, wealthy people and poor people has grown larger. Just like the income scale has grown larger um, among on, among individuals, the divide among cities has also grown much larger. And and part of that reason, part part of the reason for that is that we've had a concentration um, in, in our economy, concentration in certain companies and certain, certain markets. So to put it very, um, very bluntly, um, take, for instance, my industry of the media. My industry has been devastated by the concentration of ad revenue in a couple companies, uh, mostly Google, Google and Facebook, but also mm-hmm. increasingly Amazon. So all this money that used to be spread around the country uh, in ad revenue that used to go to, to local newspapers, local radio stations, local TV stations, and it was it just really kind of, you can just kind of picture it, kind of spread all around, um, has a huge share of that 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 business has just kind of been sucked into a couple companies, the mm-hmm. two biggest of which biggest of which are in the Bay Area, and and so one reason that you have this just insane, almost like dystopian levels of of wealth and inequality within the Bay Area is is what's happened in that media market, the concentration within that market. Then take another industry, retail. So retail used to have the the money in retail. The retail business again used to be spread all around the country, in whether in you know bigger chains, smaller chains, mom and pops, um, you know Sears, Walmart, Macy's, the lo- the smaller department store chains, all that. And now you have a growing, growing share um, of that revenue, that money, that business 
sucked to this one company yeah. that's in Seattle. And, and so you end up with concentration, concentrated industries based in certain places. And, um, and in those places then um, have become just wildly wealthy to the point where, um, where, where a city like Seattle that used to be very much sort of a normal city of sort of a middle, very middle-class kind of city, almost yeah. kind of, almost kind of a, you know, kind of a rough edge city, you know, sort of yeah, really kind of a, um, you know, it was like basically it used to be like a natural resource outpost, basically. It was a yeah, logging I, town. I used to think town. it was. I used to think it was really funny the first time I visited Seattle. I was like, I can't believe Frazier was set in Seattle because in Frazier, he's like a rich guy who's like going to the opera and stuff. And you go right. to Seattle and it's like, yeah, it's a, as you say, it's like a lot of people in flannels and, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. driving, driving beat up old uh, cars. It's a small city. It's got coffee, sure. But it's not like, you know, it's, it's not downtown New York or anything like that. It's, no, it's, no. Yeah. The first time I went there, I was just, I, one reason I loved it so much as a city, the first time I went there and like, sometime in the, you know, probably around 2004 or five was that you could still have this real sense of it being this kind of natural resource outpost. You could still picture it as this place where the, the, you know, the log, the, the, the logs that literally would like roll down the hill to, to the port and be taken <laughs> off in, in the ships. That's how it started. It was a place that where, where the timber came down and they took it down to San Francisco to, to build San Francisco. And it was, mm-hmm. you've you got the rail right there, the port right there. Um, and, and it was just, it was really kind of rough hewn in that sense. Um, and now it's just been utterly transformed. And, and in, in the book, I focus in particular on, on what's happened to, to Seattle's historic black neighborhood, the Central District, which was this amazing neighborhood um, that, I mean, I think a lot of people outside of Seattle don't even really know just what incredibly thriving and vibrant um, black community Seattle had for decades with incredible music, you know, Jimi Hendrix, all these people came out of Seattle, Seattle music scene, um, Quincy Jones. And, and now that, that part of town, it's, I mean, the word gentrification doesn't even really begin to describe it. Like just the complete erasure that has yeah. happened as, as the, as Seattle's wealth has just become, has just grown to stratospheric levels. I, I'm almost picturing what you're describing where we, we had these industries that were distributed across the country and extremely local, like local retailers, local newspapers, local TV stations, and all those dollars floating around get sucked up by one company in a single location. It's almost like damming a river or something like that, where all the water that was flowing to all these other places is now collected in one spot. And what is the result of that? Drought in one place and a flood in another. That, that like these cities, like you're saying, like Seattle, becomes flooded with money, and that is to the detriment of a lot of things. Like, as you're saying, neighborhoods becoming erased through gentrification. Absolutely. It's, it's, the bottom line is that it's not, it's not good for anyone. It's, it doesn't, it's, it's really it's good for like one or two people. <laughs> right. No, I can, and I, yeah, I can think of a few that it's good for, but for places, it's not good for each for, it's not good for either kind of place to have that kind of a, of a profound imbalance. Mm. And it's, it simply is different than what's, than what we've ever experienced before. Um, one extraordinary stat that I, you know, focus on right, right away in the intro of the book is that for, for many decades of the, you know, sort of the middle of the the last century, all the way up to like 1980, there were only a small set of places in this country that were, that were more than 
20% above median income. Um, and most cities were, most cities and places were kind of close to the median there. Like they kind of hugged that, that median line. Mm. Um, you had, you know, maybe New York and uh, a couple other places were above the line. And then maybe like the deep South and Appalachia were well below, you know, the, the, the 20% line below. Now you have just a whole swaths of the country that are, that are above 20% richer than, than the norm. And um, so basically all the coasts, most of the coasts, most of the coastal cities are now above that line, the 20% line, richer line. And then you have enormous swaths of the country that are below 20% poor. So you, whole swaths of the Midwest, whole swaths of, of the interior West um, are, are now way below the, the median. And that's, so something's happened there. And so we have this massive gulf um, it, it, between our cities. And, and you look down to the city level too. Back in like in the 60s, you look at the, the cities that were highest in per capita income um, in our country back then, and they included all these cities in the Midwest, all these places like, mm-hmm. you know, Milwaukee, um, even Des Moines, Iowa, Rockford, yeah. Rockford Illinois. Um, now, all but one, I believe all but one of the richest 20, 20 cities in our country are now on the coast. I mean, you've had this complete Is shift Chicago the of, other one? I'm just curious. No, no, I believe it's actually Minneapolis. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so you've just, you, it's had, had this incredible sorting out and, and it's, it's not healthy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's something that like, uh, I've, I've, it's a pattern that is like slowly become apparent to me throughout my life. You know, um, when, uh, I, I don't know when I think about like, when you hear the way people talked about cities in America, you know, the way people talk about Detroit, <laughs> you read something from, mm-hmm. from 50 years ago written about Detroit and, and, and the way it's written about now, um, and the smaller cities as well. Uh, yeah, it's really, really stark. Uh, bring, bring Amazon into this. How did, how, how does Amazon contribute to this? And I'm really curious, like what the effect is on smaller places of Amazon as well. Cause it's not just about things leaving. It's also about like what Amazon is bringing to those places that transforms it. Does it not? Absolutely. I mean, I, so I, I chose Amazon as the, the frame, the thread for the book, basically for two reasons. One, it, it, because it actually has contributed to this problem. It's a, it's a, is a cause of it in the way that I, that I've described here, where you have, you have a company that has gotten so powerful, so dominant that it, that it actually sucks the money and money and the wealth from certain places um, into, into the cities where it's got its headquarters. But then it also, Amazon also uh, works well as a frame because it is, because it's simply everywhere in this country. So it's a way to take mm-hmm. you, um, it's, it's a way to take you around the country um, and to sort of show, um, show all these different sorts of places that, that, are, that occupy different roles kind of within the Amazon ecosystem. So, um, and it's, Amazon is, it, it's, there are, other, there are other dominant companies in our country, such as Google and Facebook, but they're not, they're not physically present in the way that Amazon is. Right. And there's Am- there's Amazon fulfillment warehouses all across the country in these smaller cities, but there aren't, no one's going to work at the, at the Google data. I mean, there's Google data centers, but it's not, right. it, it's not in every 
county in the way that Amazon is to a certain extent. Exactly. And so Amazon is just offers a, in that sense, offers a, a thread around the country that the other companies don't. And, and, but it just allows you to, to look at what you look at, what all these places are, are becoming in that shadow. You, you have in a sense now a sorting, you have, you have the headquarter cities um, like, like Washington and Seattle, where you have, and, and then also cities like New York that have become effectively kind of headquarter cities for Amazon, even though, you know, HQ2 pulled out of Amazon, pulled out of New York. Um, yeah. Uh, in 2018, you still have now tons of, of high paying Amazon jobs going into New York, going to Boston, um, the engineers, the programmers in those cities. And then you have the warehouse cities. You have cities like Baltimore. Baltimore in the book is one of the two main sort of left behind places. Baltimore and the other one is, is various places, parts of Ohio. And you have the warehouse cities that have become the cities where that are almost serve in a sense as as the kind of the it's the back office it's the pantry in a way it's the mm-hmm. place that that um that 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 has the thousands now incredibly large numbers of of these $15 an hour jobs as opposed to the the programmers who are making you know $150,000 plus great great stock equity in the headquarters towns and so you have these this growing number of warehouse towns um, where where Amazon occupies a completely uh, different sort of different sort of role, different sort of presence, um, where uh, where it's really become in a sense you know one of the the few growing employers um, in my in, in I, I focus on Baltimore partly. I live I live in Baltimore. But also because the city, the city is, has offers one of the starkest um, uh, sort of examples of of that warehouse, that new warehouse world, because the city, like the place where Amazon now has one of its main big warehouses here in Baltimore, was once the home of what was the greatest, the largest steel mill in the entire world. Mm. It was it was a Bethlehem steel mill uh, at a at a spot in Baltimore called Sparrows Point. It's a peninsula down outside of Baltimore, down along the water. And back in the 60s, um, that steel mill employed some 30,000 people. It was just an incredible place wow. with just a whole, whole company town, five, 6,000 people living there with, with a grid of streets and shops and movie theaters. And um, the whole skyline of of um, steel mill, um, all different sorts of mills, all different sorts of furnaces, and and now that's all gone. It's completely wiped clean off this peninsula, and now it is a logistics mm-hmm. hub that has two, one now two massive Amazon warehouses, and and so you have a place like Baltimore where. In, in exactly this, the, the, the same location where you used to have guys making $35 an hour with really good benefits, um, doing very challenging, very tough, very dangerous, but, but also very fulfilling and meaningful work building mm-hmm. things are now in that exact same spot. You have now thousands of people um, packing boxes uh, onto conveyor belts for, for 15 bucks an hour. And, yeah. and so... It's that transformation, this transformation of work and what we do within our, our identity that, that to me is really at the, at the core of, of what's happening in these warehouse towns. Wow. 
Let's let's talk a little bit about what that work is. I mean, you said that uh, the work at Bethlehem Steel so fulfilling. I assume you think that working in the Amazon factory not fulfilling. Uh, what, what what is the difference between those two kinds of work, and what what characterizes the kind of work that Amazon has people do in these places? So I, I was I was actually able to. It was kind of amazingly serendipitous. I was actually I was able to find someone through whom to tell the story of, 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 that, of that changing type of work. I found a man who, um, who spent several decades working at Beth Steele. Um, wow. and, um, and, and, and that was his life. That was his livelihood. That was his identity. And, and it was in, it was in, he worked in all these different jobs in the mill. Um, he, he had, he was incredibly tough work. He had a couple really serious workplace injuries, but he loved the work and he, and he stayed with it all the way until the point that Beth Steele, um, basically started, started going out of business. He then in his, in his sixties went to work at, at, at the warehouse, one of the warehouses that, that came in the Amazon warehouses that came into Baltimore. And so he went from making 35 bucks an hour to making 15 bucks an hour, um, and he just hated the job. He was he was um, uh, driving a forklift um, under incredible pressure to get uh, pallets off of the trucks into the warehouse um, under incredible time pressure, um, feeling just this, feeling yourself just just always on the clock, always um, the, the sense that there's this sort of an algorithm that's 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 tracking your um, your performance um, with with you know, some, some young supervisor, some 25 year old logistics guy who's really riding you to get your numbers up. Um, barely any time even to take a bathroom break. Um, there's a, you know, really kind of sad, painful, poignant moment in the, in the book where, where this gentleman feels the need finally to, to go into the corner. You know, he doesn't have time to get to the men's room and he has to go into the corner behind his, um, behind his park, his forklift and for some wow. privacy. And, and, and um, no, no sense of any kind of community with the people around you, you know, at, at the steel mill, you'd have, you'd know the guys you worked with, you, yeah. um, you knew, you, you knew them, you knew their cousins, you knew their uncles, you knew their fathers, you were part of, of a community, you would, you, you, you know, you'd go have a couple beers with them after work, um, now at the warehouse, you're, it's utterly atomized. You're very likely working completely on your own within the warehouse. You're barely in contact with other with other people. Um, there's um, no no hope for any kind of solidarity in the form of of, of union organizing. Uh, yeah. Beth Steele was one reason they had such high wages. There was, of course, that they were that it was unionized and steel workers. Yeah. You don't have that at the warehouse. So it's just this. It's a much more lonely. Uh, kind of rudimentary, um, really almost kind of robotic kind of work that you're that you're being asked to do, yeah. um, and uh, and and just m- much less purposeful. Um, there's a reason why those jobs have such extraordinarily high turnover because they're incredibly uh, just physically wearing, and then also just very emotionally emotionally wearing and emotionally difficult. Yeah. My God, that's such a stark picture you draw. But I wonder that that turnover, uh, is there some way in which, you know, Amazon, I also think about Uber, we've talked about them on the show many times and, and how much 
you know, Uber's entire business model is to just, you know, decrease and take advantage of decreased worker power. Um, and, you know, turnover is almost part of the business model that, that, you know, people drive for a little while and then they quit and then new people are, there's always more, right? There's always more people who want to do it. Uh, and it seems that these companies are taking advantage of some sort of underlying lack of opportunity and desperation in the American workforce that, that, as you say, I mean, the, uh, it's not as, it's not as though Amazon is saying like, oh, Hey, we got to let these people take bathroom breaks because otherwise they'll leave and we'll never have another worker here. (laughs) You know, they're like, we, you're a cog, you can be replaced as the attitude. Um, and what, what creates that state of affairs? Absolutely. They can, they can completely de- depend on that kind of, that kind of constant stream of, uh, actually the, one of the, one of the workers I spoke with referred to himself as a refugee. I mean, that he and, and the other people he saw working at the warehouse, especially this past year, uh, during the, the pandemic, um, recession that he, that, that he saw these, all these kind of refugees washing ashore, washing into the, into the, into the warehouse who were desperate f- even for these these incredibly difficult draining $15 an hour jobs refugees from other make, forms of work like their their previous employer closed exactly and yeah. um there's there's a there's a, a a scene that I sort of end the book with that that is just I, mean, I couldn't believe it when I came across this but a I, I ran into a guy who was outside the recruiting center um at at one of the uh warehouses and i asked him what kind of work he had done before he was 33 years old and he said oh you know this is in baltimore he said oh i've just been you know been hustling been just getting by and i kind of pressed him i said no what what have you been what have you been doing um and he finally said okay you want to talk i said yeah let's talk he said all right um let me just tell you that the uh the fentanyl drug market in Baltimore has really taken a hit. And um, because of the pandemic, uh, no one is, um, my customers aren't able to, to, to go and um, steal stuff anymore. The stores are all closed. They, they got no money to, uh, to buy their drugs from me. And it's gotten really hard out there. And, uh, and so, I'm, so uh, here I am. And, uh, you know, I used to make 75K on average on the corner. And that's all gone now because of the pandemic. So, so I'm going to have to make a change here, and uh, this is going to this is going to suck. And I'm not looking forward to this, but I got to I got to suck it up. All, all my all my all my he said all my homeboys are doing the same thing. We're all we're all go, we're all coming over to Amazon. And it just oh my god, it really hit, it hit me. I mean, this is like this is basically the Wire season six. You know, the, the yeah. drug dealers the drug dealers are going down to to Amazon to get a job at the warehouse because everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Even, even the dealers. Well, in the, the state of the American economy, the American workforce, whatever you want to call it, where even, you know, dealing drugs is no longer even lucrative. If you're lucky, it's a middle-class income. I mean, $75,000 is right. yeah. A, a middle-class income in America. You're not putting your kid through college for that barely. And, uh, uh, you know, so even that is now a precarious, <laughs> like, that, like, like being a drug dealer is now the same as working at, you know, uh, working for the auto factory or at Bethlehem Steel, where yeah. it's a it's a disappearing middle class income. And right. now you got to go drive Uber. <laughs> Holy shit. That's like yeah. completely well, opposite I, the way that I couldn't believe it. That. I couldn't believe that's, it. Yeah, that's wild. Um, I mean, what about what about smaller, smaller towns, rural areas? I mean, we've talked big cities. We've talked. I mean, Baltimore is not a small city, I would say, but you know, the, it's uh, not, not one of our, not one of our most cosmopolitan megaplexes of a city. Uh, What about, 
you know, like the, you know, the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. I, I have a, a whole, I've actually two whole chapters basically on the unraveling of, of middle America, small cities and small towns in middle America. And, um, and one of them focuses on a heartbreaking story of a guy, a family in Dayton, Ohio. Um, just a classic story of white downward mobility. Um, and this is a guy who, whose father had a, a, a small trucking company in Dayton that served all the auto parts makers in, in the Dayton area. Dayton was a huge auto parts, auto parts hub. That all fell apart um, in, in the years leading up to the Great Recession. Um, and, and so that father, the father lost his business. He could, his son probably might have ended up working with him down the line, but, but instead the, the father went bankrupt. So the son, the son is left in his early 20s with um, a whole succession of different um, low-wage jobs and finally ends up in the business of being a cardboard maker. And that's what he does now. He, um, he makes uh, cardboard boxes, which is a huge industry now in the Dayton area yeah. because, because Dayton has cities like Dayton have gone from being these great hubs of innovation and manufacturing. Dayton, of course, was, you know, the home of the Wright brothers and just all mm. these amazing inventors and innovators from the late 19th century. It was the place that was putting out more patents than anywhere else in the country um, in the late 19th century. Um, the uh, really kind of the Silicon Valley of its time and a, a really kind of amazing place. And and now it has become what is essentially a logistics hub. It's a place that packages and moves goods that have been made elsewhere. So there's just all of these trucking companies and packaging companies and cardboard making companies. And, and this guy now works at a cardboard company making the same wage he's made basically his entire young adulthood. He's, he's right now around 12 or 13 bucks an hour. Um, his, his family has, has spent, he's got, um, four four kids. Um, uh, they've spent um, a, a lot of time in shelters um, in recent years. Um, he's he's gone through his family's had all sorts of really ugly things they've dealt with, including domestic violence um, that, are, that are clearly linked linked to the um, not excused by, but linked to the economic stress they've been going through. So this chapter tells the story of the really kind of the unraveling of this man's life and of, of Dayton, Ohio, um, in this kind of age of, of logistics. And I also have a chapter on the, an even more sort of rural area, Southeast Ohio, Appalachian, Southeast Ohio, um, where, where you have um, just the real um, kind of grinding rural rise of grinding rural poverty that we've, yeah. that we've, seen so much of around the country. Um, and, and there also Amazon has become, Amazon, Amazon is so aware of how desperate places like that are that when it was building two of its, um, its first two warehouses in, in uh, Ohio, it put one of them on the, on the Columbus Beltway, right at the spot in the Columbus Beltway where the, the, the road shoots down to Southeast Ohio about an hour away so that the, all the folks without work down in that part of Ohio um, could make that hour-long drive up, you know, pretty awful hour-long commute to, to one of those warehouses because they knew that that would be one of their main um, workforce uh, oh. sources, the people so desperate for work that they would make that, that hour drive 
um, up, um, up to the Columbus area. Now, is that, look, I can imagine how Amazon would present that to the local politicians in the area. We're bringing jobs to the area. In fact, Amazon has, you know, engaged in, you know, making different areas have competitions, you know, for tax breaks in order to locate, at least very famously, the HQ2 site. Uh, d- 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 are those, is that area actually deriving a benefit from the location of that, of that warehouse? I mean, it, it sounds horrible to drive for an hour to work for those low wages and those grinding conditions, but is that better than not? That's absolutely what Amazon, the, the case that they make, and they, and they were making that very, of course, very aggressively when I was, when I was talking about with that, them about all this, they basically say, look, we're we're better than nothing. I mean, that, that is, um, that is sort of their, their, their main argument. That <laughs> that's, that's honestly, is not a bad slogan, not a bad slogan overall, uh, for Amazon. Like, Hey, you could not, you could have nothing or you could order this shit and have it come to your house. <laughs> right. And that, but that, that has become, you know, at least yes, there, there, at some points they'll almost, they'll almost come to the point of saying, look, yes, this, the system we have now, the, the, this economic, um, reality that we have is far from ideal, um, but uh, but if but, but but we're better than nothing. And if it weren't us, it would be someone else. That's that mm-hmm. basically that's the other the thing they like to to to, to point to um, that we're just kind of it just happens to be us. There was this mass, massive shift in the economy. Someone someone was going to come in and fill this kind of e-commerce role, um, and and it's us. Um, it could just as well be, be someone called something else. What that seems to overlook is that is that there are specific things that they have chosen to do, specific ways they've chosen to behave, um, choices they have made, not just sort of things in the in the ecosystem, but the choices they've made that have actually made made the problem worse. So choices they've made about um, about how aggressively to pursue tax breaks in the places they move, move into, which then has the result of, of kind of uh, immiserating the, uh, the local infrastructure, the local, um, the, the local tax base, undermining, uh, undermining communities because the of giving out. And roads and, and all those exactly. things that, that uh, the people who live there depend on don't see any benefit from Amazon coming there. Absolutely. One of the, um, some of the sort of grittiest reporting in the book is, is stuff I was able to get through free, freedom information requests and other reporting showing just how those deals get made um, and just how, how aggressive and, um, and, and also um, kind of secretive Amazon is in seeking those deals. Um, there's a lot of that in the book. Um, so you have, you have those tax breaks. You have all of the ways that Amazon has in fact gained its dominant role through um, you know, as a, in competition with, with other retailers through, uh, through, again, through choices they've made, choices about how to, um, how to evade sales taxes for many years, uh, thereby building up its, its edge against other retailers, choices in how aggressively to, to, to handle its, um, the, the, the merchants who sell on the site um, and, and thereby build up its dominance. Um, specific things they've done that have actually given them this this role of of, of just extraordinary, unfathomable um, dominance within within our economy. So so yes, it's now gotten to the point where for this given place, whether it's Baltimore or or 
uh, high poverty rural Ohio, Ohio um, having that option of that of that fifteen dollar an hour very difficult warehouse job is quote better than nothing. But there are things they did to get us to the point where we were yeah. left with them as the only option. Well, look, I, I have a lot more questions for you about how they got to that point and about what it means for us that they have so much power. But we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Alec McGillis. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you wanna safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com Adam. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, we're back with Alec McGillis. Um, so I want to ask you this. Uh, Tim Wu, in his book, uh, The Curse of Bigness, about monopoly power, one of the things that really stuck with me from that book is that he talks about monopoly power as not just being economically bad, you know, we, oh, we have to pay more prices, et cetera, et cetera, but it's, it's essentially undemocratic, that when a single company has so much power over the way the rest of us live our lives, uh, that is bad. It, it means that they can reshape not just our economy, but our lives themselves and the country in their image. And that's inherently undemocratic. Amazon certainly fits the bill as a company that has that much power. And I'm curious how you've seen them use their power and, and how that shaped America today. Tim is absolutely right about this. And it's, it's one reason that I chose to, to, focus much of the book in, in Washington, D.C. Um, even before Amazon picked D.C. for HQ2, I knew that I was going to put much of the book there because um, it's just a very clear regional example of how the company's growing um, growing dominance has has then translated into into a level of political dominance that um, that that does verge on becoming uh, and threatening democracy. Um, you have 
the, it's really the, the extent to which Amazon has taken over our our national capital or federal capital is just incredible. And and I and I don't, I don't think we've really grappled with that yet. I mean, you have um, first, of course, simply the fact that the owner of Amazon, the richest or second richest man in the world, bought the newspaper, bought this incredibly, yeah. incredibly, this great influential newspaper that, that had played such a role in sort of setting um, our, our, our national debate, our national conversation. Um, he buys the newspaper. He, he then, he buys the biggest mansion in town, this incredible sort of double wide mansion that he bought with the explicit intent of, of turning it into a kind of a salon where where he'd be sort of convening all of the sort of Washington uh, power brokers, Washington influence mm-hmm. into into this mansion for, um, you know, for, for soirees. Um, you have Amazon building up its, um, its lobbying operation in, in the city just exponentially to the point where it's now one of the biggest uh, lobbying shops in, in Washington, $18 million a year they're spending now on lobbyists. I mean, they're just, they're just, they're just, they're just all over the place. Um, it's, of course, led by Jay Carney, who used to be Barack Obama's press secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, you, have, you have then, um, on top of that, Amazon becoming incredibly uh, influential within um, not just, we haven't talked much yet about the cloud, but you have the, you have the, the, the huge growing Amazon Web Services uh, sector of its business, which now provides so much of its profits. And that, that, that cloud business has become incredibly dominant within the federal defense realm. So, so much of our so much of our yeah. the CIA, uh, so much of uh, of of um, the government more broadly is now run through um, run through Amazon Web Services, run through their their cloud. So you have a huge presence in, in DC just through that. And then finally, now you have HQ two, where you have them putting twenty five thousand more very high paid, well paid jobs just across the river in Arlington. Um, which is going to make them, you know, by far the biggest um, non-government employer um, in in the area, and and just you're going to end up with just this this one company having real, having just this massive presence in in our nation's capital, um, and it's it's something. It's something that normally, to be honest, I would I would be expecting the local newspaper to write about just how this one company is taking over their city, but they have owns the newspaper. Yeah, my God, and yeah, the amount of the amount of influence that Bezos and Amazon can have just by controlling all of those all of those outlets at once, everything from the newspaper to. Yeah, like having the having the individual people over. Oh, I've been to Jeff's house. Jeff is a nice guy. Right, you or know, even like the, even the t- were great last year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or even like just the guy. It's it's also going to be the um the guy who you know the dad, other dad on your daughter's soccer team. You, you know, you chat with him on the sideline, and he's just some you know Amazon you know vice president or Amazon programmer guy. He seems like a nice guy. Like what you know, they're not so bad. We should just you know yeah. it becomes it, it, it becomes so everywhere so I'm present that you don't even think to, to to challenge it. They're just the guy, they're just the people down the street. But this amount of power, I mean, this is like early 20th century Robert Barron, Andrew Carnegie, like 
you know, massive power residing in one person and one company. Uh, like it really feels like we're we're headed back to those days, especially when you look at Amazon. I mean, h- how long before Jeff Bezos, you know, does what like Andrew Carnegie did? And like, oh, I'll put a library in every city to make everybody love me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that's a it was a good thing. We have a lot of those libraries still, but it was also an exercise of pure power that, um, you know, were redounded to his benefit. Uh, but it also strikes me that, you know, that period in American history when we had those massively powerful economic figures was not a good time for the average American. That was not when we had our most prosperous uh, period as Americans. The time that we had that was you know, in the 50s and the 60s, like after those companies had been broken up, after we got rid of Standard Oil and et cetera. Um, and uh, that we, you know, we had higher taxes and less consolidation, at least on a, on a broad scale. And so to me, it seems very worrisome that we seem to be backsliding to that previous state. I mean, talking about, you know, Tim Wu's book, again, the subtitle is The New Gilded Age. Is that how, where, what you feel that we're moving into? We're absolutely moving back there. I mean, it's in, in so many different ways. The, even just the way, the way that Amazon has been, has been able to grow so so successful and wealthy, you, you, you can actually compare it in, in very specific ways to, to what, say, um, Standard Oil or the railroads were able to do back in the Rockefeller days, where, where, you, where they, they acquired such dominance that you basically had no choice but to, to, kind of, to, to ship your goods on their, on their rails. They got their cut, and it became uh, – and you, there's no way around it, and you had to pay – you had to pay the price they were demanding. You had no, no other option. It, it was almost like a tax. It was almost, um, they were just kind of collecting. It was, a, it, was a, it was a rent that they were collecting essentially on, 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 on all commerce in the country. And, yeah. and, that's, and that's what you see now with Amazon able to, if you're, um, you know, both in the, in the, in, in the cloud realm, you, you sort of have, in a lot of cases now, you have no choice but to go to one or a few, just a handful of companies for, for your cloud services. So they're basically mm-hmm. kind of taking their cut of that part of the, this new massive part of our economy, all the stuff yeah, that's happening in the cloud. They take it from Netflix, they take it from exactly. every, every, every company that's built on their servers. Zoom, everything. And, and, then, and then even more, of course, more starkly, you have it on the, on the retail side, where if you're a third party merchant now trying to sell your, your goods, you have, you really have, you feel like you have no choice, but to, but to, to sell on Amazon. And, and you, so you're, you're, you're there um, as a third party, party merchant, which is now a massive part of their retail site. It's well over half of their site now is other people selling their stuff on Amazon. And those, those sellers are now facing ever, ever higher um, uh, cuts uh, that, that Amazon's taking, whether it's just the basic, the basic commission, the advertising, they feel forced to do all these different slices that Amazon takes to the point where it's now 25, 30% that a, that a typical merchant is, 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 is often wow. losing to Amazon. So they really, they're, they're just there as kind of a gatekeeper collecting their tax on all these different you know, parts of our economy, not unlike what, what John D. Rockefeller was, was doing um, back at the, at the turn of the century. And, and then, and then the other obvious example that you already mentioned is this philanthropy that we now, you know, 
yes, we can point to those libraries and those universities that were that came out of came out of those those early those gilded age plutocrats, and and we, and we're now at the point where we are now left kind of kind of hoping for those those kind of those crumbs to fall from from our from our new plutocrats and and that's that's what we're kind of left with you know hoping that that a a gates or a bezos or someone else will will deign to to throw some money toward climate change as as jeff bezos just recently did or deign to throw some money toward uh the, the local the local housing um shortage i have a whole chapter in the book um about the, the big fight in Seattle over affordable housing. And of course, there's, there's a huge crisis in Seattle with housing prices going through the roof. And there was a, a big fight there in the last couple of years over whether to to basically tax Amazon to to provide more money for yeah. for housing for for housing and homelessness services, and uh, and Amazon launched an incredibly effective uh, lobbying fight, political fight uh, against that 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 proposed tax ended up ended up killing it, and and then turned around and and threw some crumbs, some philanthropic crumbs. Um, uh, uh, toward toward you know some some housing local affordable housing um, funds and and uh, so you think oh well, what's the big deal you know they're they're giving it this way instead of that way and I and I you know I have a very good commentary on this in the book from a local activist uh, young woman who just said this is not the way it's supposed to work you know we're we're society we're a democratic society we're supposed to decide as a whole how we're going to decide who how we're going to decide to to help people and provide um, provide basic services in our city, um, in our society, it's not supposed to be left just to the whim of this this or that guy to to throw yeah. a couple to throw a couple couple crumbs when he feels like it. Yeah, and of course, what the crumbs that they throw will be crumbs that they can afford that are structured the way they want them to, and they'll be biased towards doing things they can put their name on, right? Andrew Carnegie's libraries, they're all called Carnegie libraries and he's remembered to this day, <laughs> you know? So that's what Bezos would be incentivized to do rather than to, you know, support a more invisible sort of policy that might result in better outcomes. And certainly there'll be, uh, there'll be less of it. And it's of a piece with what we've seen. The, you know, all of these companies do, the gig economy companies with Prop 22, you know, for the first time they're facing regulation and they fight back with that by saying, oh, well, we'll offer this instead, but of course it's far less. But we can present it as though, oh, we've solved the problem. We've, you know, uh, added employee benefits when really the employee benefits they've added are paltry compared to the ones that they took away. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the the the, the third-party sellers the, because that is so much part of Amazon and you know, I now avoid Amazon in my in my own online shopping, which, by the way, is like enormously inconvenient to do. Like if you try to, there's so many things. If you try to order them, uh, you uh, if you try to order them not on Amazon, you quickly find you have nowhere to go. Um, and a lot of times, you order something from a third party website, and it still shows up at your house in an Amazon box because you didn't even realize the company is using Amazon fulfillment. But when I did use Amazon more regularly, I, I would start to get a sense that, you know, you'd order something and then the box would come and you'd be like, hold on a second. Like, where did this come from? Like, this seems like it came from a weird place. This seems like an oddly packaged item. And you start to realize that there's a lot of like what what Amazon has done to our even our supply chain has become very odd. There was a, you know, report 
in uh, The Verge by Josh Diziza, I think I'm pronouncing it right, about um, how entire towns now have like small towns have, you know, been consumed by this industry where people basically order goods on Amazon, repackage them and then resell them on Amazon in a way that like they, they just sort of become this weird arbitrage, like turnaround people with garages full of packages um, you know, selling selling things in order to make like a couple nickels profit on it on eBay. Um, and it's this weird sort of pointless labor that's being done. This doesn't need to be done. It's not improving the product at all. It's just, you know, buying it from here for slightly less and selling it on Amazon for slightly more. Um, have you seen any any of these weird consequences? Absolutely. I mean, I, and I have a whole whole chapter in the book about this whole realm. And it's, and yeah, I, I wish it's, I hadn't even tried to explain it. You tell me about it, please. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, so I, I have a chapter in the book about the third party sellers and I, and I based it in, in El Paso, um, where, and I, and, and I actually based it in the office supply industry, you know, so these, these companies that are just like the company, the famous company, you know, in, in, in the office in Scranton PA, mm-hmm. um, who who sell uh, paper and other office supplies to mainly to you know to other businesses to to local schools or law firms or whoever whoever needs office supplies and 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 I found a couple of very colorful very charismatic um, office supply dealers in El Paso who have in recent years felt extraordinary pressure to 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 sell uh, on Amazon um, and. And they've been getting pressure from the company, and also pressure from from some of their local clients, including um, the El Paso city government and El Paso school districts that were big customers of theirs, um, and and are now wanting to buy directly from from Amazon instead. Amazon has sort of um, reached out to them and said, uh, "Why don't you just buy buy from us? It's much more convenient. You know, everything's more convenient on Amazon." And and then the the the, comp- the the city and the school systems would went to their local suppliers and said, "Hey, we'd really rather do this through Amazon. Um, we can still buy from you on Amazon, but let's just let's just do this through Amazon instead." What that, of course, overlooks is that is that this, these third party merchants, these local office suppliers, are going to lose a big cut to Amazon when it, when you have that middleman there. Um, and I, I was actually able to um, to get into a. a Slipped into a a a, a uh, pitch session where Amazon some very some top Amazon reps were meeting with El Paso office supply dealers at a convention and making this you know this, this sell to them urging them to to just kind of give up and join Amazon and and, and do all their selling through the site and and watching how they made that pitch and watching how they kind of withheld the the, the very important point about the cut. Um, that they were going to be taking from these these local businessmen until the very end, and actually didn't even withhold it at the end. They had to be kind of pressed to to, to kind of reveal it, um, and and so I just I take you into this whole world of this 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 the pressure that these that these that these local suppliers are facing, um, the conundrum that they're facing, where they feel like they have no choice, and and then this kind of a poignant moment at the end of this chapter where. Where I'm talking to the son of one of these 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 suppliers, these local businesses, and he works in the in the business. He's uh, he's he helps. He's a salesman. Um, it's a it's a uh, it's a really you know friendly uh, Mexican American family there on, on the border, and um, and he mentioned just in passing that he's on the side. He's been getting into 
to, to just doing selling of his own on Amazon, just what you described, like buying goods, uh, basically sight unseen, and then all sorts of goods, just kind of discarded goods, surplus mm-hmm. goods, and then, um, and, then, and, and then packaging them, or sometimes not, not even repackaging. It's something, you're, they're, they're, they're goods you, know, you know, as a seller never even see. They just, they're just kind of moving out there in the ether. And, but you're, you've, you've bought them, and then you're going to resell them on Amazon. Um, and, it, and it's that whole bizarre realm of, of just stuff moving in boxes into, yeah, as, as the Verge piece described, into some town in, somewhere in Montana, you know, and, 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 and so much of our economy is, is now that realm. I, I found another, this happened again. I went once, I was in Ohio outside Dayton at one of the big uh, data centers outside Dayton, you know, where, where the, outside Columbus where the, where the cloud lives in those data centers. And um, I needed to use the restroom. So I went to a, uh, there was a church nearby, like a modern church, evangelical mm-hmm. church, windowless church. And I asked to use the restroom there. And she said, sure, go on in. I come out and I start chatting with the nice, the, the, you know, the, the woman at the desk there about how weird it is having this data center next door. And, um, and she mentions, and just in passing, that she herself has now gotten into selling goods through Amazon, um, you know, on the, just the, the quote fulfillment uh, site yeah. where you just again goods that she's never even seen they're just she wow. bought them somewhere online she's reselling them online she gets a cut she's got some box in a warehouse somewhere some carol that's basically her stuff and um and that's that's just something she's doing on the side it's wow. just it's completely bizarre yeah i mean there was this like story uh, one of these weird internet stories i saw uh, a month or two ago about uh, someone had found a, a house for sale on a Zillow or Trulia type site. And it was this massive house and people were, you know, you could do the walkthrough of the house and people were baffled by it because it was like this endless warren of like shelves. Like first there's just like someone's weird little living area, you know, sort of, sort of like uh, someone who's sort of sleeping on their pullout couch. And then you go down the hallway and you go uh, down a little bit and suddenly there's boxes and boxes of CDs and random goods and books. And like it goes endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. And what people eventually, some internet sleuths figured out what this was. And they figured out it was somebody had purchased a, a church and was an old church that no longer had a congregation, was living in the front. And then in the back was, uh, you know, selling goods out of it, you know, selling, selling things on Amazon. Um, and had made a little ersatz like, you know, fulfillment center of their own in which they were selling like Shania Twain CDs and, and just like basically it looked like just flotsam, like anything that passed through their hands right. that could be sold on Amazon would be. And I looked at it and I was like, holy shit, this is where the stuff I order on Amazon is coming from. Like, I know, I know the story about the fulfillment center with the people running around with the robots and they're being timed and stuff. And that's half of it. But the other half is just this almost invisible network uh, I mean, nobody even knew that this guy was doing this, except he tried to, you know, he eventually sold the house on Zillow and we could see pictures, right? But like, right. <laughs> like Amazon probably doesn't even know what the inside of this place looks like. Like this is, it, it, and that is such a massive distorting effect for a company like this to have that there's hundreds of thousands of homes like that across America now. I'm making up the number, but a massive right. number. Uh, that are that are full to the brim of weird shit that someone is selling. Exactly. When when they used to have <laughs> they used to have a job, right. you know, and now they're doing this, and, right. and that's 
have we even do we even have a cognizance of what this company has done to our society yet? No, and that's that's we absolutely do not. And and because so much of it is invisible. I mean, think about it. Like that that basement was invisible until until we were given a glimpse of it. Um, the it's all so much of this is behind closed doors. I mean, that's why I've come to think of this. That and it's of course gotten so much worse now during the pandemic, but that's everything you used to, you used to go to a store, right? And you would, you would in some form interact with, with someone at the store. It was somehow a social activity. And, uh, you know, I don't want to glamorize, romanticize it, it, you know, the, 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 the malls could be pretty bleak and, and some of the strip shopping centers could be pretty bleak, but there was still, um, you know, as I describe in the book in a chapter about this, this regional department store chain, the, the Bonton, the chain that grew up out of small town Pennsylvania and spread around to small cities in the Midwest. And there's, there's still a social element there. Um, you, were, you were out in the world, you were, you were in your town, you were together with other people. They would have, at the Bonton, they would have wine receptions for, you know, for moms to come together to when they would have a new line of fashion coming into town. There are all these different elements of, of, of that involved actual interaction with other human human beings, and now so much of it is is behind closed doors. From from that basement with the guy with his goods stocked away, just waiting to send off, they get sent off, and then they pass through that windowless warehouse, and then and then they're showing up in that box on your on your on your on your front step, and it's wow. all so invisible. And just think about that. Like that's how how much how much less human interaction is involved in that chain than 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 what used to be and just the the atomization that produces and and now that we're seeing just how unhealthy it is for us all to be shut in you know with the pandemic to to lose that that social interaction that basic humanity well we've been we've been heading in that way for quite a while in this new world as it was this has only made it worse but we were already heading that direction well, first of all, you know, I have to thank you for doing the work of a journalist and making the invisible visible, <laughs> right? Because that is what, that is fundamentally what, uh, what journalists do. And I think that's often lost in our conversation about journalism and the, and the purpose of, of news and everything else is to like, just make us, you know, turn events that otherwise no one would see into knowledge um, so that we can have a conversation about it. Uh, what, can be done about this is that something that you take a position on i i i don't take a position on the book in the sense that i don't make an argument in the book the book is not an argument book it's not a thesis book it doesn't have there's not a you know there's not one of those concluding chapters with the the list of things that must be done but there is definitely an underlying sense which i give some sort of implicit um uh, airing to it, it, it near the book's end that part of the problem here a big part of the problem is the concentration that part of the reason we have such that we have such concentrated wealth and prosperity in certain places to the point where they themselves have become kind of unlivable is that in such this in such an unhealthy imbalance across our country is that we have such concentration with within certain markets and certain companies and that one way to restore some basic sense of balance um, across our country would be to 
to break up that concentration. And so the book, the book is definitely, definitely makes an implicit case for, for this new, this new push toward a new kind of new push um, toward, toward competition, toward antitrust, uh, not unlike what we, what we did a century ago. Yeah. I've seen that argument bubble up more and more in our conversation about what's wrong with our economy with, you know, why, why is it that the American dream has gone in reverse? And, you know, I, I've experienced in my own family that, uh, you know, the, the, the progression we used to have of, uh, you know, you get a good job and you send your kids to college and, you know, you have a pension and all that. And, and we are all, all upward, upwardly mobile has, has reversed in many ways. And, when you look at the totality of them, more and more it seems to be about the story of concentration. And uh, the, uh, to me, the more and more it seems like the number one thing we need to do is start putting in antitrust, starting to look at breaking these companies up. Do you have any hope that, I know this is not your, <laughs> this is not what the book is about, uh, but we have a new administration in. I don't know what the priorities of the Justice Department are going to be, if they're going to be thinking about antitrust enforcement, but do you have any hope that the conversation is moving that direction and maybe we'll see more of that in the future. I do actually have some hope on, on this front. Um, the, obviously the, the res- resistance is going to be huge. They, there are just these massive um, lobbying operations that, that are made all the more effective, of course, because they have quite a few uh, people from the sort of democratic realm, um, past democratic administrations, the Obama administration, who people who have close ties with with people that are now now coming into the government is something that you know that can't be overlooked is just how much tech is helped by the fact that it is that it is very much a uh, democratically aligned industry um, yeah. and um, the sort of complicity of of democratic you know sort of democratic power brokers in tech surprise is 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 a big issue mm-hmm. but that but there are now more and more people on both sides of the line of the of the of the political spectrum who who see this problem and i think that's one reason that i think it does have a chance is that this is one of the few areas um of policy where there actually is some some agreement um across uh, across the spectrum and people 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 have different motivations, maybe, for why they are wary of big tech. Um, they're coming from different places on this, but the fact that they that they share a general um, wariness and general sense that something needs to be done to rein in these giants um, means that that there's actually some hope for getting something done. Um, that you you might actually be able to to build some kind of a, a coalition on this on this score. I'm hopeful of that as well, uh, and I think it's one of the big jobs of the next five years in American politics and policy. But, you know, the first step of that is making clear what actually is at stake and what is happening, what these companies are doing across the country. And thank you for coming here to do that for us. And thank you for for spreading that, you know, for telling these stories that otherwise wouldn't be told. Uh, The book's called Fulfillment. People can get it wherever the hell they get a book. I assume they can get it on Amazon, right? They can, uh, as, as long as they keep selling it there. <laughs> you know, maybe get, uh, you know, get, get it from your public library and then download it to your Kindle, perhaps. <laughs> uh, Alec, thank you so much for being here. I can't thank you enough. This is wonderful. Thank you, Adam.
Well, thank you once again to Alec McGillis for coming on the show. The book, again, is called Fulfillment. If you loved that interview as much as I did, I hope you will tell a friend or family member about the show. That is the thing that helps us out the most here. Just say to someone, hey, I heard this good interview. You should check it out. Take a listen to the podcast. I want to thank our producers, Kimmy Lucas and Sam Roudman, our engineer, Andrew Carson, Andrew WK, for our theme song. You can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover, wherever you get your social media. And until next week, we'll see you on Factory. Thank you so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.